Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another and impacting the world. Well, once again, good to be here this morning and wonderful to see faces uh, all around, even back in the chapel and uh, more and more folk coming back week by week. And uh, it's good to be together physically to worship spend time together. Well, this morning I'm back in the book of Exodus, and it's chapter 16. So second book of the Old Testament, and won't you turn with me? I do want to read the entire chapter, so do bear with me. I think uh, it's good to just look out for the detail. It is a familiar chapter, a familiar account, but uh, some very, very helpful uh, revelation that God gives to us in Uh, this chapter, as he does, of course, in all of the Bible. I want to pick it up in verse 27 of chapter 15. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. And so Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling, uh, I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came, covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay on, around the camp, and when the dew had gone, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, 
as much as he can eat, you shall take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it and each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, when they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each, and when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you bake and boil what you boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. And Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day some of the people went out together, but found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each, you, each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar, put, it in, put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is the tenth part of an ephah. Just so far, uh, reading of God's word. Lord, we pray again, remembering that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. And your word before us this morning, help us, Lord, to receive it, to believe it, to the glory of your name. Amen. Just the last couple of weeks, many of our young people across the country felt something of the shock and, and pain, real heartache, pain, uh, grief, hearing of the alleged suicide of a well-known celebrity rapper. I think older folk wouldn't know, but uh, Ricky Rick, younger people would know the name. He died on the 23rd of February. Well, emotional letters, apparently written by the rapper, uh, have come to the fore. Letters that were addressed to both his wife and children, and wanting to say to them, to apologize to them, and so that they did not feel any blame for this uh, thing that had taken place. And I just want to quote the one line uh, from a letter written to his wife. 
found this in the Sunday World, by the way, uh, online newspaper. Dear Bianca, this pain is too much. I don't want you to blame yourself for my life being unbearable. Okay, I want you to just think about that last phrase. I don't want you to blame yourself for my life being unbearable. Which really brings me to the first point of this message this morning. Life being unbearable can be a common experience. We're a big group of people here this morning, and many of you can identify with that statement, with that experience, the weight on your shoulders, the world, the world around us at the moment, and not only today, we can look back in history, and I'm sure as the, the, as the world and time unfolds, it seems to be lurching from one crisis to another. And I, I, I can mention some of them, the recent crisis, the global pandemic, uh, it's affected our lives. We come to church with masks on it, we have distance between seats, we wash our hands repeatedly. It, it, it's affected our lives. It's, it's changed the world, the, the, the way that we live. In the context of that, in, in our own country, but even further afield, there's been much economic uncertainty. Many people suffering as a result of unemployment or cuts, cuts in salary and just basic difficulty of unemployment. Political and social turmoil. Uh, we have lived in that context in South Africa for a long time. But it does seem at the moment that once again we are deep uh, in, in, in the throes of, of political turmoil. And then not to forget the recent news of the war between Russia and Ukraine has consumed uh, the newspapers, uh, that which we see uh, on, on the social media. And then, of course, uh, an array of natural disasters. I've read of a number of floods that have been occurring across the world. So you, you get the picture of the world in the bigger scheme of things, crisis after crisis after crisis. But then we need to bring that closer to home and say, well, yes, there, there are also personal traumas. Now, I'm not going to elaborate. You have your traumas, people sitting out this morning, and, and, and I have my trauma. You, you, you can put a label as to what that is. And, and so whether it be disruption in your life because of global emergency bringing anxiety or whether it be personal tragedy that's weighing you down maybe it's both of them together the the, the point is the the reality is that difficult times can take a heavy toll on your emotions and even your spiritual well-being we don't live uh, exempt from the pressures of the world around us. And so the challenge that you and I face, it is that of coping. The title of my message this morning has to do with coping in the midst of difficulties. And what happens when we are under pressure, when we feel this weight of the world on our shoulders? There's, there's that sense of feeling and, and thinking that how am I going to get through the next day? How am I going to cope if this thing gets worse next week or next month or next year? Well, life for us, in many ways, is very similar to life described, in my words, as a yo-yo experience. You know the yo-yos? I don't know if we still have yo-yos. Yo-yos that go up and down. 
Well, that's, that's the nature of life experience. It, it, it's up and it's down and it's up and it's down. And, and, and the Israelites that we read about in Exodus that were en route to the promised land experienced that kind of thing. And again, let me just remind you very quickly, the initial euphoria. Surely there must have been exhilaration of being released from, after generations of cruel slavery. But the reality is that that exhilaration, that euphoria soon fades. Didn't take very long. They're stuck with the sea on the one side of them. They've got an aggressive army on the other side of them, and they become quite discouraged. They're back down in the pits. But their spirits are soon lifted, experiencing the intervention of God, the miracle of walking through the Red Sea on dry ground. And I can imagine, and they did, they ended up singing. The horse and rider thrown into the sea. Enemies were wiped out. They were floundering and they were drowning. But not long thereafter, Suffering without water. And in their journey resulting in another, and I've chosen these words carefully, another mood swing. Going from the top to the bottom. Spiraling downward into miserable despair and self-pity. And then we get to the end of chapter 15 and they're on the up again. Feeling no doubt like they were in paradise. Reading in uh, that verse, in Elam is the place where, they were, where there were 12 springs of water. Now remember, this is in the midst of a desert. 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. And so they're up. But the journey continues. The end of, at least as they move on, uh, chapter 16, things change again for the worse than in the wilderness of sin. And all of that happening, and I want you to notice, this is where detail of a passage is so important. Look at the timeline. All of this that I've described to you has taken place in chapter 16 and verse 1, the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. 30, 60, 15. What is that? 75 days. Well, have I got that right? The second, no, it's 45 days. It's a month and 15. It's 45 days. And what has happened in those 45 days? They've loved life and they've hated life. And not just once, repeatedly. Loved life, hated life. Loved life, hated life. And so repeatedly, life for them again, and they find themselves in this chapter Life again is unbearable. It's hard. They're not coping. That's the point. Wishing, wishing themselves to be back in Egypt as slaves under Pharaoh. Chapter 16, verse 2. The whole congregation of people of Israel grumbled against Moses in the wilderness. And the people of Israel, verse 3, said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Did you get this? They're whining, they're whining, they're whinging. When, and, and they even describe the, the situation back in Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill us, to kill this whole assembly with hunger. It is at this low point, and now they're at the bottom again, it is at this low point on their journey that God again intervenes. God brings again a situation providing for their needs, enabling them to cope. It was provision, and that's why I read the whole chapter. I wanted you to see that it was provision 
that endured for the entire time of wandering in the desert, 40 years. And so as we move on to my second point, and I want to focus the analysis of the passage particularly and specifically on the people of Israel. So I've made the point, them learning, because there's a learning experience here. They didn't do it very well. They needed to learn. Them learning to cope then, back then, by leaning on God's provision. I'm going to try and unpack that a little. Again, context is important and understanding the situation. Uh, having left Egypt, there's a journey that they have to undertake. There's a journey to complete. If you think about it, they, move, they need to move from point A to point B. But to get from point A to point B, there is a geographical terrain that needs to be navigated. It's not a very friendly terrain. It's dry. It's in some places mountainous. If you think of Sinai, it's, it's a difficult terrain. It's going to be hard. And then along the way, there are going to be those who are unfriendly nations. They will have to confront them and, and navigate their way through that. And then, and then also we notice in our passage that God says, there, says here that along with the challenges of everyday travel, they will encounter God testing the condition of their hearts. Exodus chapter 16 verse 4, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Well, them learning to cope by leaning on God's provision, it starts by appreciating the grace of God. It starts by appreciating the grace of God. I'm sure you noticed as we read the passage that seven times in this passage there is reference to the Israelites grumbling. Grumbled and grumbled and there's talk about grumbling and there's response to the grumbling. And, and so I take from this an understanding that it was their default mode on any step forward on their journey where they encounter any kind of hardship, they grumble. They whine. They, they, they're unhappy with what's happening. And, and so there's grumbling. And, and so three words that come to my mind to describe this kind of disposition of grumbling that defaults to the mode of whining. Three things. Forgetfulness. I'm going to touch on them just briefly. Ingratitude, not being thankful, and exaggeration. You see, they were ungrateful and forgetful of God's repeated intervention over 45 days when they did find difficulties, His intervention in helping and providing for them. The very big one, of course, delivering them out of Egypt from slavery. They simply forgot. It simply disappeared from their minds. And then making matters worse, making out that the experience as slaves in Egypt was not all that bad when they sat at meat pots and ate bread to the full. I think that's an exaggeration. It was not easy in Egypt because if you remember back then, they were also grumbling. These are symptoms of rebellion against God. Forgetfulness, ingratitude, and exaggeration. And so if this describes 
people who are in rebellion against God, we can conclude, we can conclude, we should conclude that God would be justified in wiping them out on the spot. Don't miss that in this passage. But he doesn't. He does the very opposite. And he shows them, in the midst of their rebellion and their grumbling, undeserved kindness. Have a look at chapter 16 and verse 4. Now, if I'd not known this passage, and I'd been reading about these people who are grumbling against Moses and God, I would expect the passage to read something like this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain wrath from heaven on them. That's what they deserved. But God doesn't say that. Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. Just explore a little of this undeserved kindness given to them by God in this narrative before us, in the story. How do, we, how do we see this undeserved kindness tangibly uh, in evidence? And, and I put it into two categories, and just very briefly. In the first instance, God provided them with food. And, and, and don't forget, don't forget that they left Egypt with sheep and with herds of cattle. They had food, and yet they were still whining and whinging. And, and God graciously provides food for them day in. For 40 years, in spite of them having had food with them. God supplied the people of Israel manna and quail, all the bread and meat they needed for each and every day. The second demonstration of grace, put it in these words, God showed them not only food, but he showed them his face. Now, I use that word because... uh, Their sinful attitude should have resulted in God turning his face from them. That's what God does when when he's angry, when when, when he pours wrath out on the people, when when, when he acts in judgment. But we find he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that to them. He's not showing them wrath, but he's showing compassion and kindness. And just one example of it in chapter 16 and verse 17. He tells Moses, in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord. They don't deserve that, but he gives it to them. And so we ask the question, did they need to grumble? Would, would, would God have, let's use the word again, rained plagues on Egypt and opened the Red Sea so he simply would starve them in the desert? Of course not. So here's a, a lesson. Choosing to grumble is an unnecessary option for those who have God's redeeming interest in them. And I'm going to develop that a little bit more just now. Choosing to grumble, you and I, it's an unnecessary option, choice. We make the choice to grumble. It's unnecessary for those who have God's redeeming interest on them. You see, the better and right option is to recognize and appreciate the richness of God's grace. And again, I'm going to explore that in a little while. 
God giving to them, repeatedly giving to them what they do not deserve. But they don't appreciate it. They don't see it. They don't remember it. They're not thankful for it. But then as we move on, them learning to cope, leaning on God's provision continues by believing in the trustworthiness of God. So I went to a school in Johannesburg that was predominantly populated by young Jewish boys. It was a boys' school. Made a good friend, uh, visited his, at his house, very wealthy young man, lived in that suburb of Saxonwald. If any of you know Joburg, a beautiful suburb, double-story houses, money oozes all over Saxonwald, and it's populated by many Jewish business people. So my little friend, well, little friend, we were both little, my school friend told me, why, according to his father, Jews do so well in business? I don't know if any of you know the answer to that. I'm going to explain what he explained to me. He said to me, the training starts when the boys are young. And it starts with the father and son playing a game. The father places his son on a wall, plonks him on the wall. And then he tells his son to jump off the wall into his father's arms. The boy jumps, and the father deliberately lets the son fall to the ground. Well, they repeat that exercise again and again. Each time, the father reassuring the son, this time, my boy, this time, my boy, I will catch you and I will protect you from hurting yourself and protect you from hitting the ground. But he never does. The game ends. And eventually, the father tells his son that the game is a lesson. My boy, this is a lesson for you to learn. Don't trust anyone, including your father. Now, that story came to my mind because God is not like that. God is definitely like Our Father in heaven is trustworthy. When he says, jump, I'll catch you, you can jump and you can be sure he's going to catch you. And I'm using that as an analogy. So go back to our passage. God provides manna on a daily basis with an instruction to only collect enough for that day. Verse 4. Gather a day's portion every day. On the sixth day, there is twice as much available for two days' provision to cover food for the seventh day. And so the purpose of God's approach in this instance is to test them. Verse 4. The people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. What kind of test is it? It's a test of obedience and trust. The two are connected. Being obedient will follow trusting hearts. It is God saying that when you believe what I've promised, you will not be greedy or be tempted to make your own plans. Some of the people didn't trust God. They didn't obey God. They made their own plans. And what happened in verse 20? They did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning and... It bred worms. It stank. Moses was angry with him. 
test of obedience and trust was teaching them a practical lesson about the trustworthiness of God. And you know what the lesson is? There's a lesson for us. Trusting God one day at a time. One day at a time. You see, they were to look to the Lord each day for sufficient grace for that day. Sufficient provision for that day. God did not provide in one gigantic delivery what they needed for the rest of the journey. One day, 40 years. He undertook to provide for them, and they needed to believe what he had promised. This brings me to my third point, and I want to now address us, apply this to us. And so my point simply entitled us, learning to cope now in the days that we live by leaning on God's provision. Both of the above lessons uh, can be applied to us in the present experiences of life, but I'm, I'm separating it because we don't see manna falling from heaven. We don't see quail occurring on the ground at night. So we have to take that situation, extract from it the principles that God was teaching them and apply it in our day, in our circumstance. Well, yeah, are some of the lessons. I'm going to bring you two lessons from then, and I'm going to add a third lesson from the New Testament. Number one. Choosing to appreciate God's grace will dissolve attitudes of entitlement. Why does grumbling happen? Grumbling emerges in us mostly in situations where we are convinced that we need something better than what we have been given. That's why we grumble. I deserve better than my lot. Whereas grace properly understood knows that if God actually gave us what we deserve, we would perish. And folk, I don't think we Christians get that lesson. I preached this sermon uh, an hour and a half ago, and immediately at tea time, I was still engaging with people that didn't get it, didn't get it, didn't get the grace part. We, we think we deserve better. We, we don't understand that we are, are, are sinners, that, that we have fallen, as Mark prayed in his prayer, and that apart from grace, we, we perish. But here's the problem. Again, just illustrating from a book that I read a couple of years ago. The book is entitled, Helping When It Hurts. In that book, the point is made that when a gift is given for the very first time, it is appreciated. The recipient is so glad for the gift. You're so kind. I'm so undeserving. You, this is so wonderful. But then when the gift is repeated, and again repeated, and again repeated, you know what happens? The recipient gets used to the gift, and it soon becomes an expectation. That's the problem. Over time, appreciation diminishes. And entitlement grows. Now we can talk about that when it comes to giving somebody some food, but that applies also when it comes to the gift of life in Christ Jesus. You see, the problem with our wandering hearts is we so easily follow the slippery pathway away from appreciating grace to entitlement and expectation. 
And so the, the challenge is we constantly need fresh reminders of what grace really is. Never to forget that it is God who could pour wrath down in judgment on us. That's what we deserve. But he chooses to lavish blessing instead. Number two. Notice I'm using the word choosing. You make the decision every time you get up in the morning what kind of uh, way you will approach the day. Choosing to accept the trustworthiness of God will diminish anxiety. So I've been in the ministry a few years now, and I've conducted more than, I think it's more than 120 weddings, many weddings that I've uh, officiated at. Well, <laughs> in most of those weddings I've conducted, by far the majority, I've discovered that brides come late. You know that? Brides arrive late. The waiting grooms, I've discovered, can be divided into two groups. Here's the first group. There are those whose anxiety levels grow exponentially as each minute passes by. And I, I, can, I can see it because they're standing in front of me. Beads of sweat begin to form on the forehead. And, and the face begins to go pale. But you know, it doesn't go pale. It starts going pale. And it sinks downwards. And they begin to waver. And you begin to think, are they going to faint? Their anxiety levels are so high. And, and, and what's the problem? They are men who hope the bride will arrive and honor her undertaking. But they're not sure. <laughs> Remember the movie? In the back of their minds, thinking she may be a runaway bride. The others... Other grooms, I've noticed, they're totally at ease. No anxiety, because they know the bride. They know that she has made a rock-solid undertaking. He knows that she can be fully trusted. Well, folk, the Bible is full of undertakings from God. Simple logic dictates if God is absolutely trustworthy then every one of those undertakings are rock solid. And therefore, there's no need to be anxious. There's no need to be uncertain as to whether he will keep his word. And so the undertakings of God should lead us to places of conviction. Yes, God is present. Yes, God will provide. God will give me the, the strength that I need to cope in the midst of my difficulty. He will comfort me. He will forgive me. He will be faithful. He will show compassion. He, he loves me. He says he loves me. I know he loves me. He will hear my prayers. And so you can go on and on. And so choosing, choosing to, uh, to what did I use the word? Choosing to, to accept the trustworthiness of God. Well, now the third one that I add from the New Testament, choosing to appropriate the living bread to satisfy your souls. We go to the New Testament, and we find that after Jesus had fed the 5,000, John reports that the Jews challenged him to give them a sign so that they would believe in him. And they refer to chapter 16 of Exodus. They said, John chapter 6, verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. 
Now, you see what's happening over here is the, 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 the incident back in Exodus chapter 16 is not some kind of isolated event. It's an event, part of the revelation of God, pointing to the true bread of Jesus who is to come. And he goes on, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now they keep on with this conversation and for the wrong reasons. Now he has the wrong reason. They are consumed with present temporal provision. Lord, always give us this bread, thinking that God will provide for their temporal need every day. And Jesus responded, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. The point that Jesus is making, certainly one of the points Jesus is making, that he will satisfy the present and longer-term spiritual need of all who come to him and believe. But the Jews didn't want that. The, their emphasis was on the temple. And so they respond again by grumbling. And then Jesus rebukes them and adds, I am the bread of life. Your father ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. Now, folks, pause there for a minute. Because all of us have a tendency to focus on the present. And God provided bread in the present, and they died. Because that's the nature of life on this earth. There is a terminus point. There is death. But then he goes on. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. My provision is eternal, beyond this life. I'm the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And of course, he's pointing there to his atoning work on the cross. Warning them, exposing them that life finds its meaning and fulfillment, not just in the present, but also in the eternal, in the real knowing, in being reconciled to God. He was pointing to the truth that as we truly feed on him, now we're not talking about literally feeding on Jesus. We're talking about the fact that uh, feeding is a reference to believing. We're going to do that this morning in demonstration in the communion. As we eat that bread, we're not eating the actual uh, body of Jesus. We won't drink the actual blood of Jesus. But these are symbols. And as we eat these symbols, we're affirming our believing and feeding. We're feeding. We've been nourished in our souls, provision for the souls, so that we can enjoy nourishing sustenance as we walk in a barren wilderness, enabling us to cope day by day. Let me conclude. Leaning on God's provision to cope is a daily choice you and I have to make. You can, I can, we sometimes do, especially in hard times, take our eyes off Jesus. And when we do that, we forget where we have come from and we make the wrong choice. Grace then to us is ordinary and not amazing. Is grace amazing to you today? When it's ordinary... 
it will leave you feeling you deserve better than what you've got. Better than what God has given you. It's in that condition also that God's undertakings, and I've seen this, I see it again and again, God's undertakings seem like flimsy cliches. We don't really believe them. Don't tell me that verse. We feel they have no relevance in the midst of our present challenge. And then when grace is no longer amazing and God's undertakings are perceived to be flimsy cliches, you know what happens? Appetite for the bread of life diminishes. There's no longing for Jesus. And so, folks, this morning there is a challenge, and it's great that we're meeting at the Lord's table. It's the best way. Deliberately and consciously to choose to keep your eyes on Jesus, feeding, believing, trust. I use that word appropriating. It's no use having a steak on the plate at the spur. You've got to take it, you've got to cut that steak, you've got to eat it, you've got to chew it, you've got to swallow it. And that's what you've got to do with the truth of God. You've got to appropriate it. Not just know it in your head, not only discuss it with your Bible study friends, you've got to believe it in the heart, in your heart and soul, and feed on it. So in reality, it is the cross that you can't help but see. At the cross, you can't help see that grace is amazing. God's undertakings are rock solid. So the challenge is this morning... Where are your choices leading you in your disposition displayed day by day? Do you know, are you convinced that there is no other way than to trust and obey? Now, if we had time this morning, we'd sing that song. But I knew we wouldn't have time, so i just remind you of it. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And then I want to pray a prayer, and then we're going to meet around the Lord's table. The prayer is another song. It's another old song. Forgive me for remembering all these old songs. Uh, But it's a beautiful song, a song that brings tremendous truth. So bow your heads with me, and I pray just one verse from this song. One, One day at a time, sweet Jesus, that's all I'm asking of you. Just give me the strength to do every day what I have to do. Yesterday's gone, sweet Jesus, and tomorrow may never be mine. But God, help me today. Show me the way, one day at a time. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.